For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with the latest readout video from our Wednesday wake-up newsletter. And this week, our lead story was the imminent opening of the much-unawaited 28th Conference of the Parties. And what a party! There were only 10,000 participants at COP3 in 1997, which yielded the famous Kyoto Protocol. The number rose to nearly 30,000 at COP21, which at least yielded the Paris Agreement. But this time, there were projected to be an astounding 70,000 people in attendance, with no expected outcome at all, other than a plan to meet again next year in even greater numbers. So, we're going to ask, what conceivable result would justify holding this conference at all, let alone flying in that many people to gabble and gobble? What would constitute success for COP28? And, if it falls as far short as we expect, why would you do it again next year? Is it like some college prank where you want to see how many spoiled elitists you can cram into a conference booth? In the newsletter, we also noted that UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres did have a plan for the upcoming COP conference. Namely that, quote, the response to the global stock take must light the fuse to an explosion of ambition in 2025, end quote. So his metric for success isn't achieving anything or even having ambitions to. It's having ambitions to have ambitions. Not to be outdone, The Economist sent us a tart email saying, quote, the world must try harder on climate change, end quote. Boo, bad world, slacker, letting the people on it down. Hey, wait a minute, aren't the people of the world the victims of global warming and the perpetrators? Isn't the world just a giant sphere hurtling through space, and it's the human beings on the world who have conflicting wants, desires, and pretentious plans? Isn't the real question what this vast horde of loud-talking, self-important, wealthy people flying into Dubai hope to accomplish, or think they should hope to accomplish, at COP28, and what their standard of success would be? Or is that question just too awkward to think about? Yeah, pretty much. In the newsletter, we also noted a Euronews.Green report that, quote, MEPs call for militaries to be more transparent in reporting emissions, end quote. Yep, that's our big security concern, all right. Ukraine war, Chinese military buildup, explosion in the Middle East, phooey. What we really need now is to slash those dratted CO2 emissions from our tanks and planes and ships, if we even have any. Or cars. The Washington Times reports that, quote, New Jersey will outlaw the sales of new gas-powered cars to combat climate change after the State Department of Environmental Protection officially adopted a rule forcing automakers to transition to zero-emission fleets by 2035. Governor Phil Murphy, a Democrat, insisted the directive will preserve consumer choice and promote affordability, end quote, by denying consumers' choice and raising prices. Meanwhile, in Canada, Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault told Parliament that he had letters from ordinary Canadians Jill and Bob thanking him for the carbon tax and related rebate. But in response to an access to information request for the actual letters, quote, after a thorough search, no records were found concerning this request, end quote. Duh. Also, journalist Tristan Hopper notes that the governments of Canada and Ontario have dumped a record-breaking quote, $28 billion in government performance incentives to secure two foreign-owned EV battery factories in southern Ontario, end quote. But now we discover that one of these, which is meant to create 5,500 jobs at a bargain basement $5 million a job, is about to hire 1,600 foreign workers because there are apparently no Canadians who need, want, 
or can do these jobs, leaving politicians going, um, duh, what, yet again. Also, a new study confirms that the Hunger Tonga eruption on January 15, 2022, produced colossal, poorly understood changes in the stratosphere in particular, quote, leading to unprecedented losses in the ozone layer of up to 7% over large areas of the southern hemisphere, end quote, and, the lead author said, quote, it injected about 300 billion pounds of water into the normally dry stratosphere, which is just an absolutely incredible amount of water from a single event, end quote. So, Climate orthodoxy said odd weather in 2023 had nothing whatsoever to do with this irrelevant little incident. It was all CO2, naturally. And now, a word from our sponsor. And yes, again, that's you. All the people out there who are already backing our work and all the people who are subscribing. More than 84,000 of you on YouTube alone, where we've had almost 10 million views. But we need to keep up the momentum. And that's why I interrupt to pass the hat to those of you who aren't already backers and say please make a pledge, one time or monthly, $3, $5, $10, whatever you can afford so we can continue to push back against the climate cult and win this battle. And now, back to me. Also, from the Better Than Nature file, we're told by Euro News Green, quote, how a mosaic forest is helping France adapt to rapid climate change, end quote. And you might be thinking, yeah, that would be the process whereby trees love CO2, and the more of it there is, the better they grow, especially in colder and drier places, though also in the ones to which they were treated as the planet cooled since the Middle Ages, and because species move about as conditions change. It's kind of like that evolution thing that Darwin was so keen on. But if you thought that, you would not make a suitable correspondent for your own news green, because they're all excited about the fact that the plan is for a committee of bureaucrats to tell forests how to grow better. Left to their own devices, forests have, of course, changed in response to changes in climate since the invention of the tree, which, by the way, seems to have been in the Devonian between 350 and 420 million years ago, though deciduous trees came later than conifers. But no more messy trees just growing wherever conditions seem to them to be right. Now a French public servant is in charge. If anyone is. The Guardian crows, under the headline, quote, Could superpowered plants be the heroes of the climate crisis, end quote, that man has made a better plant? Possibly a triffid. But they're not worried. Quote, In an asphalt-surrounded greenhouse at the back of a business park in Hayward, California, on the shores of San Francisco Bay, a sea of more than 200 leafy green hybrid poplar saplings are itching to break free from their pots. They have been genetically altered, there are about 100 different lines, with the aim of making them better at absorbing carbon dioxide, CO2, end quote. And they're itchy? Sounds a little ominous. Of course, there's already been a massive greening over the past 40 years as plants brilliantly adapted to even the most difficult environments. Things like cactuses have feasted on carbon pollution and colonized the most dismal stretches of arid, chilly scrub. But never mind that silly old nature. We have genetically engineered a better tree. And the busybodies have also reinvented our diets, of course. And as usual, they've discovered that we normal schlubs have been eating all wrong. The Eye announces that, quote, climate-friendly diet rich in grains, fruit, and nuts reduces risk of early death, study finds, end quote. Especially, we suppose, genetically engineered ones that will maybe suck the carbon right out of our airways. And the climate war on normal continues with a piece in The Verge on the views of Carlos Martin, quote, the project director for the Remodeling Futures Program at the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University, end quote which certainly makes one wonder, yet again, what they're teaching them in schools nowadays. 
Remember when universities had departments of English, mathematics, history, and dare we say it, theology? Now they've got a remodeling futures program. But we digress, because the real issue here isn't remodeling the future, it's remodeling the present. See, apparently the housing crisis has nothing to do with high interest rates, excess regulation, supply shortages, or whatever else you might have thought. It's climate change, because of course. And, says Martin, quote, it's going to mean we have to start thinking much more about not just building a generic house that we think of historically in this country, end quote. Which is obviously rubbish. Nobody ever told a contractor or a realtor, I just want a generic house. Instead, our homes have been remarkably well adapted to, um, what's that thing outside? Oh yeah, the climate. We build deep basements in places where it freezes in winter. We build cooler layouts in places with extended hot summers, to which the populace of the United States has been migrating since roughly the 1940s. We have solid brick walls. We have double glazed windows. We have air conditioning. We have furnaces burning reliable fossil fuels, and so on and so on. Even Auntie M and Uncle Henry had a storm cellar, which would have kept Dorothy safe if she'd just managed to reach it in time. And we also discovered this question, quote, do you have a climate disaster story to tell, end quote, which is from the Climate Disaster Project, which is coordinated to that renowned home of hard science, the University of Victoria's Faculty of Fine Arts and its Department of Writing. This thing couldn't be more woke from its, quote, trauma-informed process for sharing survivor stories developed in consultation with trauma experts, end quote, to, of course, a groveling land acknowledgement. And they hand out money, too, an average of $500 to each lucky charismatic survivor. Not that they're buying coverage, exactly, just in case. But where do they get all this money? Because we could sure use some. Though while waiting for those infamous big oil company checks, we do continue our ECS in the Real World series with a paper that, rather than trying to estimate ECS itself, set out to figure what is the lowest it could be. The authors wondered whether it was possible that extra CO2 in the air could lead to no warming at all or even cooling. Nah, no. Leonard Benkinson and Stephen Schwartz in their paper, called Determination of a Lower Bound on Earth's Climate Sensitivity, concluded that the lowest plausible value of ECS was definitely positive to some degree. But along the way, they did also determine that the best estimation of ECS, based on those dratted real-world observations, is about 2 degrees Celsius, pretty much the same as all the other studies in this series, and a figure at which no significant policy meant to limit emissions can possibly do more good than harm. Oh, and we also learned of a new study led by scientists from Kiel University in Germany that reconstructs temperatures and ice coverage off the North Atlantic coast of Labrador over the past 9,000 years. To measure that far back, they went and looked at deep ocean floor cores that give clues about how much sea ice there was because of the organisms that were flourishing or weren't. And since we all know the world is the hottest it's ever been, there must have been far more ice then than now, right? Mm -mm. It's the other way around. How odd. The scientific team found that about 9,000 years ago, the sea ice in the Labrador Sea was in retreat and there was a lot of open water. Around 8,500 years ago, as the melting continued, the Hudson Bay Ice Saddle Collapse allowed the Lake Agassiz Outburst. Those are pretty cool names. In which this body, which was roughly the size of the Black Sea, flowed into the North Atlantic, further driving down sea ice coverage. So until about 7,500 years ago, open water increased. But around 8,200 years ago, the ultimate demise of the Laurentide Ice Sheet led to a sudden cooling of the North Atlantic as another surge of accumulated meltwater reached the ocean basin. So from then until about 6,500 years ago, sea ice coverage steadily declined as the North Atlantic warmed up into the mid-Holocene climatic optimum. 
and the phase of relatively low sea ice and warm temperatures continued until about 3,000 years ago. But, this is the weird part, the past 3,000 years have been marked by steady cooling and increased sea ice coverage. Hottest ever today? We don't think so. More like next glaciation coming, which really would be a climate catastrophe. Finally, the newsletter delves into the CO2Science.org archive because for years we've been bombarded with reports of melting and thinning of ice in the coastal areas of Greenland and the catastrophic consequences that climate alarmists have said will follow in the wake of the dramatic sea level rise they predict will result from these mountains of meltwater that will be released into the surrounding ocean, together with their even further fetched story of imminent thermohaline circulation shutdown induced by the impending huge freshwater discharge to the region of North Atlantic deep water formation. But a study from the interior region of Greenland's famous ice sheet says it's getting bigger, not smaller. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I knew COP28 would be a bust before it even started. That's right.